Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Recently, a friend uh, sent me a link to a, um, a video on the internet, and I think it was titled, God is in the Detail. And the producers of the video made what I thought was a, an interesting point, and they said, um, and essentially they illustrated it by saying, often when we think of God, we think of the grand, in, in, when we think of God in nature, we think of the grandeur of you know, amazing waterfalls and the beauty of forests and trees and, um, you know, maybe looking out at uh, and seeing a, uh, a pod of whales or, or even fish, um, wild animals uh, running around maybe in a big nature park somewhere. So we're, we're looking at the, the things that are quite large. And then uh, they went on, though, to... Um, uh, point out that really the there's powerful evidence for a creator God in the detail. And they pointed out, for example, that if we take a you know a humble insect such as a, a butterfly and we look at the design and then they hone within the butterfly, the structures that are there within the butterfly, and then they honed in on the structure of the eye of a little butterfly's eye and all the different cells in its shape and how virtually a butterfly, when it's flying, has virtually 360-degree vision. It can see all around it, above, below, behind, in front, simultaneously, all at the same time. And, of course, that helps it to uh, avoid, you know, predators such as birds and so forth. And um, just... Um, you know, following that, um, as uh, I was watching the news, there was an article about a man who um, had returned to his Jeep and he, he left the windows down on his Jeep and when um, he got there, there was a swarm of bees. Um, had Well, bees had swarmed and had uh, were hanging inside um, his vehicle just... Um, Above the uh, the pillar behind the uh, the driver's door, uh, this big mass of bees. So he'd, he'd simply gone into a, a shop um, at a shopping centre to to get some uh, you know household items. And when he came out, well, what am I going to do? But as fate would have it, um, there was a an apiarist passing, and. Um, He uh, saw the predicament and had the equipment. He had a smoker and and so forth and was able to go over and and smoke the bees and remove them and and put them in a a box. And a a couple of things uh, jumped out at me there and that was the the amazing um, fact that just at that time there was this... um, beekeeper was passing just at that time. I know we often talk about uh, providence, but um, I remember uh, travelling on a a main highway where um, there was a a collision between a car, well, several cars actually, and and a truck. It seemed that uh, a car had overtaken a 
uh, another vehicle. One vehicle uh, had overtaken another vehicle, but there was a, an oncoming car or truck and it caused one of the vehicles to swerve into the path of the truck, um, took out the steering on the truck, and this was a great big uh, Mack semi-trailer carrying mining equipment and the driver had lost steering, had crossed across the road uh, to the opposite side in front of an ammonia truck, which had just missed. And I thought, wow, if it had have hit the ammonia truck, everybody in the area would have been dead. And um, at the same time, the uh, no one was killed in, in the accident, although the highway was closed for about six hours. We were about two vehicles behind the ammonia truck. And I just thought of the amazing uh, providence. There was a, um, a utility or a, um, a pickup, I suppose, uh, some people would call it, truck that had equipment on it. And essentially, it was just like the, the chassis was left. Most of the body had been taken off in the accident. And the two occupants of the car were sitting on the side of the road. And they were actually being attended to by an ambulance officer when we, we got there. So we were we didn't actually see the accident. We were just behind. But there was an ambulance that was following on the other side of the road um, that saw the whole thing. The ambulance officers were there. The two men in the, uh, as I said, in this pickup that was totally demolished. All they suffered were things like a broken arm, broken rib. They weren't life-threatening. And I remember seeing the, the Mack truck uh, because it, you know, we were waiting there for about six hours and I saw where the the whole front axle and, and giant springs on this truck had been ripped to the side of the steering. But the truck hadn't had, had come to rest um, along on the side of the road parallel to the um, um, ammonia tanker, the big ammonia tanker, which was also a semi-trailer. Um, but obviously on the wrong side of the road and in the, in the bush and trees on the side. So it was, a, it was amazing that no one was killed in this accident and there was an ambulance officer there because this accident occurred on a very remote region of Australia. On It's a place where it'd be well over 100 kilometres or 60 miles in um, be in between sort of pieces of civilization, um, And yet when the accident occurred there, the ambulance just happened to be travelling there at that time. There are many examples of this and when I think about it, um, it makes me think of, of God's providence uh, in many cases. Is there, is there part of a, a plan? And just... Um, this morning I opened um, an email from um, a publisher, an editor of a, um, a large publishing house that I'd written to 22 years ago to see if they were interested in publishing my book In Six Days, which went on to become a bestseller. That's In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. And at the time they knocked it back but the fact that they knocked it back, I ended up going with a much larger international publisher. And this editor had written to me and said, you know, at the time, 
I was new to the job and weren't sure what sort of books we would be publishing. But in hindsight now, you know, I realised that was a a mistake that uh, we didn't accept your book at that time. But as I thought about, this was a relatively small publisher with a relatively small readership. And in hindsight, the fact that that was knocked back it meant that I kept on pushing for a, a bigger opportunity and and I went with a large, ended up going with a large international publisher, New Holland, which were the first publishers of that book. And of course, that book now has become, it's been a very, very strong seller in the area of creation since that time, uh, which, you know, 20, 22 years now. It's often in the top 10 books on creation versus evolution on uh, Amazon in the in the US, for example, now still selling today. And of course, it's it's gone through well I, over sixty printings, um, and in various languages: German, Italian, um, Portuguese, Spanish, as well as uh, English editions in different countries. And when I think about these things and and think about uh, providence, to me, this is powerful evidence for the existence of God. But of course, to many people, it's 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 still not well. It's it's just chance, you know. Or they say, "Oh, well, you were lucky, you know, that that small publisher knocked it back, and you ended up going with the bigger one." But I don't see that because I see there are so many examples of this. And of course, people say, "Well, look, why was our beautiful daughter killed in that road accident?" Well, I can't I can't answer that, obviously. And re- and but one thing I do know. As I was doing a lot of research into, for example, the effects of alcohol on crime and this sort of thing, and of course I published the book Uncorked, The Hidden Hazards of Alcohol, I found that when there were often random crimes committed, um, and uh, in other words, crimes where uh, violent crimes where the perpetrator didn't know the victim, often and in many, many cases, it seemed almost a very high percentage of cases, the person was a Christian um, and a person that was really loved in their community, did a lot of community work, this sort of thing. Which was so often the case, it really stood out. And to me, again, this fits in with the whole picture of the controversy between good and evil. Now, admittedly, I'm supposed to be talking about bees, but again... I thought, you know, what are the chances just at that time that a beekeeper would be passing by at that particular time? And, you know, I I can tell many stories, and I have on previous episodes, of amazing coincidences like that that occur. You know, when evolutionists believe in evolution, they have to believe in even greater coincidences. Because just after this, I was reading an article about bees. So I I mentioned recently in one of my programs, I'm reading a book um, uh, uh, called Design and Catastrophe. It was only just uh, been published not so long ago. 51 scientists explore evidence in nature, essentially for design. And one of those articles... Uh, talks about mathematics and design in the realms of bees. It's by a Dr. Lusanio Gonzalez, and he, um, uh, I know, it's a, a strong creationist, and he he writes that um, 
back uh, one of the uh, Greek uh, philosophers um, and geometer, uh, Pappus of Alexandria, who uh, died about 290 AD, uh, uh, sorry, died about 350 AD, um, in his uh, uh, treatise called Synagogy, um, um, which was a collection of uh, voluminous work on mathematics, he is um, said to believe uh, that he wrote, bees, by virtue of a certain geometrical forethought, know that a hexagon is greater than a square in a triangle and will hold more honey for the same expenditure of material. Well, of course, he was uh, looking at that from a, a presumably a, a, um, a non-Christian, a non-creationist per- perspective. But it's interesting that you know the the hexagon of the uh, bee colony, and uh, these are the, the typical honeybees, which are bees that form colonies. And of course, not all bees form colonies. Matter of fact, about ninety percent of bee species are solitary. Um, of course, we're most familiar with the commercial honeybees and the structures that uh, they make. Uh, but um, uh, only around about 10% of bee species actually form colonies, uh, are social creatures like that. But if we consider these honeybees and their, um, the way they uh, construct that, the, the angles are so close to... 120 degrees. It's interesting. So in the, in the inter, interior uh, angles of the equilateral triangle, the square and the hexagon, are of course 90, uh, 60, 90 and 120. And um, the angle around each vertex of the hexagon, uh, you know, of the, the structures, of course, the hexagon, must add up to... 360 degrees and of course uh, that's what happens with the um, regular polygons of course have this property and um, it's interesting that these structures that the bees made are so accurate um, and so reproducible so how did the bee know that that particular shape was the most efficient in terms of its structure to hold the the honey that it would produce for the minimum amount of material to encase it. Um, it's really an optimal construction design. And um, it's fascinating that some of the behaviours that bees... Uh, carry out can be explained ma- uh, mathematically from the perspective of what they call tessellation theory and optimum housing design. And uh, so this is, again, something that, again, just have so simple, just this hexagonal design um, that uh, enables the bees to build this really efficient structure with a minimum amount of t- material that is actually um, extremely strong. The bees create these hexagonal prisms in three rhombic sections. The, the walls of the cell meet at exactly 120 degrees. 
And so what makes this truly remarkable is that the bees work simultaneously on different sections of the honeycomb, which shows by their behaviour a strong feeling of collectivity. But they're building different bits in different parts, but it all adds up and fits together and makes these cells that are only 32 hundredths of a centimetre thick. It's really, really... um, quite amazing, the, uh, the thickness. And yet these cells can support 30 times their own weight. Um, and the fact that they use this hexagonal structure, they use less wax. And remember, the, the wax um, has to be sweated out. It, they, a lot of energy is expended by the bees in making that wax. And so by having these structures, they do less work to enclose the same space as if they were tessellating with prisms um, of a square or triangular basis. And so uh, mathematically can demonstrate it of the three polygons, of course, the hexagon has the smallest perimeter for a given area. So when we look at these, um, these features, of course, evolutionists have to believe that this structure just occurred by chance. It was just a, just a random event that occurred. Well, I think the, the evidence is overwhelming of a creator that programmed the bees to do that. You think of the implications of, of bees, you know, structing, you know, just things randomly in all different shapes. And yet bees, different bees work collectively and build these structures up that all fit. So different bees are doing different parts and yet it all fits together. To me, this is overwhelming evidence of design and how this design was programmed into the bees to behave like that so that it's a very successful structure. And this is something that is very, very simple. But if it wasn't there, if it didn't work, the efficiency of you know making different structures and and so forth, um, you know, when we take all that into account, it just points to someone who knew a perfect solution to the problem. I think uh, when we think of you know, bees too, often some people think of being stung, and I remember as the uh, the journalist filmed the uh, beekeeper, or as it was filmed, whoever it was that was there that filmed for the news, the the uh, apiarist getting uh, the bees out. He was obviously stunned because you see him shaking his hands a couple of times. And again, when we think of, of bee venom, again, for all these things, the chemicals that are involved in this all have to be pre-programmed to work. And you've got to have something. You're not going to poison the bee. Um, and yet the, the venom has to work just effectively in just the right situation. You have to have just the right chemical compounds there. And of course, they are all produced by the genetic code. And again, evolutionists have to believe that the code to make these different compounds arose by chance. The other thing is too, you know, when the bees seal off the little larvae, the little egg is laid in the little cell and the um, larvae grow um, and um, as the, and it's being fed. And then, of course, the, the uh, cell is sealed over. 
and of course it's sealed over with a porous wax, a wax of different composition. So it's porous compared to the structure. Otherwise, the little larvae inside would die, would suffocate. It needs to be able to, to breathe. And of course, the other thing is too that when the little larvae reaches the stage where it's, it's about to go undergo metamorphosis, it weaves itself a little cocoon. And there's a special gland on the side of its head that emits these silk, this uh, particular compound that's runny and then sets and forms the silk around the cocoon, a transparent silk. And so again, you have to understand that all at, all at the same time, coordinated, that the chemistry to produce the compounds to make this silk that comes out as a liquid but then sets quickly, all the, uh, the, the chemicals to make that reaction happen are produced in the body by different reactions and all that has been pre-programmed um, uh, by the DNA, the code. And again, as evolutionists have to believe that that code arose by chance uh, blind mutations that actually ended up producing this amazing gland and the amazing chemicals that when combined produce this quick setting silk. I think when we look at the detail like this, the overwhelming evidence for a creator just just stands out, just so abundantly in, in my mind. There are there are so many aspects to bees and the bee structure, the beehive, the, the, the body of the bee, the eye, all these little structures um, that form part of the, the bee that point to an amazing engineering designer. Because, you know, when you think of the body of the bee and his wings are relatively small and yet he flies very efficiently and there's been quite a few studies into that and the type of bee wings and the and their body that also gives them lift and, and so forth. Um, there are just so many aspects to this that all line up and all work. Um, the compounds in the pollen and how the bees can process this in their digestive system and uh, extract the protein and so forth, and that of course is what is fed to the, uh, you know, to the little baby bees. And of course, the amount of feeding to the the larvae determines whether it's going to be a queen or not. And of course, the whether the eggs are fertilised or not depends whether they're a male or female. The female eggs are eggs that are, have been fertilised that the, the queen lays. And so the queen can actually determine the number of male and female eggs, it would seem, that she lays. You know, there, there's so many aspects to this that, uh, again, when we look at the detail and in so many aspects of nature, we, to me it just points overwhelmingly to a creator. If we look up an article like this, however, on you know something on Wikipedia and this sort of thing, many of these fine features, these fine details are glossed over and the significance of them, and I'll talk about the genetics and this sort of thing, as if it can all happen by you know just random mutations and the theory of evolution and so forth, um, by natural selection. But we've got to remember natural selection removes information. It doesn't increase information. You know, of course, um, I guess people can, 
you know, still argue, well, you know, that still doesn't prove that that there is a God. But when I when I think about it, you know, the Bible says that humans were made in God's image. And the Bible tells a story about how this amazing creator wanted to actually have a relationship with us. This creator, this mind, this non-material being, and remember God is non-material, God is spirit, he's outside space and time, he's not limited by time, and I think we we have a very shallow limitation, you know, a very shallow understanding of time. It's, it's much, much deeper uh, than, you know, just the the ticking over of the the clock and trying to date things as millions of years. And I think, you know, sometimes people, again, that try to pick holes in the Bible, you know, forget this, forget the the factors that determine time. But we have this picture that we're created in God's image. And, you know, really we've been able to understand the detail that's out there in nature. As we explore, as we look down, over the years we've begun to learn the chemistry. You know, if we go back nearly 2,000 years or 1,800 years, 1,700 years, we, we get to scientists that observed and made these observations in nature and we've reported these intricacies. And it's taken these thousands of years for us to really develop an understanding to look at the mathematics, to begin to apply mathematics and understand there's so much mathematics involved and understand the laws of physics and then chemistry. And as we've done this, we've been able to do it through our mind. Bees can't program and design new features. They can't design a new type of architecture. But we as humans can. We're special. We can design architecture. We can learn these facts about a hexagon and hexagonal prisms and so forth, and we can apply it and we can build on it and we can discover from science, we can learn, we can mimic nature. But bees and that can't. They're, they're limited to that. They, they're not evolving the ability to you know, create new types of structures that have advantages. But we have been able to. And to me, again, this is powerful evidence that the Bible account fits what we actually observe in nature. It fits the human, the description of humanity. We can understand the evidence that points to God. And of course, I think that you know, God saw the, the crime. You know, when you think about it, man has deteriorated bad, badly. For thousands of years, we've been fighting one another. We've been killing one another. Good people have been killed by bad people and so forth. And he must think, when God looks down on this, uh, he must be so disappointed and so sad. And it makes so much sense that God should come and live amongst us. Now, if you think about it, now, if God came down in some spaceship and, you know, a big display, we'd all be in fear and all we'd do, all do exactly what we said. But by God coming as Jesus, as a very humble teacher there, a very poor teacher, and showing the way, we have to make that choice that that's what we want to be. And that then shows our genuineness of heart. If we choose genuinely to accept Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf because we don't want to be that bad person, it separates the people that are just 
wanting to be good because they don't want to be hurt, as to those um, that choose, that's what they choose. They really want to be good. They really want to be in a kingdom of God that is filled with love. Remember, if you want to re-listen to this program, you just Google 3ABN Australia, or one word, .org.au, and click on the listen button. You've been listening to Faith and Science. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 